Hey, Zio family and anyone else who's listening to uh, this message. Uh, this is Matt Summerfield here, Senior Pastor of Zio Church, and I am super excited actually to take some time to explore in more detail this amazing story where Jesus interrupts a funeral uh, that's told in Luke chapter 7. And it's appropriate that we're looking at this because we are in a crazy time of suffering and stress right now. Um, over 35,000 people have died in the UK from COVID-19. Many, many more battling with physical and mental health issues. And uh, this week uh, in May, we heard the Chancellor tell us that we could be heading into a recession the likes of which we've never ever seen. As fears of unemployment explode, debt spiralling out of control. And of course that's just the stats within the UK. Other countries are faring, quotes, better, others much, much worse. And even before COVID, we were so aware that there is so much suffering and pain going on in our world. And so it raises questions like, how do we appropriately respond to the suffering we see around us? What does this moment demand of us? What does God require of us? And so, as always, we see that Jesus is a great example. And this story in chapter 6 of Luke's Gospel, verses 11 to 17, hopefully will help us find some answers as we seek to be carriers of good news in a climate of bad news. And as I said, this is a, a, another great interrupt moment in the life of Jesus. And in this interrupt moment, in these six verses, we're going to see six movements that Jesus makes in the midst of suffering. And these are movements that he makes to us, but also that he wants to make through us to those who are suffering at this time. So we join what appears to be a heartbreaking and hopeless story. But as Jesus interrupts and intervenes, everything is about to change. And if you look at the first few verses of Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 7, you'll see that this story actually happens the very next day after Jesus has just miraculously healed a highly valued but terminally ill head servant of a Roman officer. And so it's no surprise that people are like amazed. And so a huge crowd builds and they start to follow Jesus the next day. They're literally like wondering what's he going to do next. And the story picks up in Luke chapter 7 verse 11. And Luke writes, Soon afterwards, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain and a large crowd followed him. So let's picture this scene, Jesus, the disciples, a very large crowd. And this crowd are carrying an atmosphere of joy and excitement and expectation as they head towards this place, this village called Nain. But as they arrive at Nain, they're met by a very different crowd carrying a very different atmosphere. Verse 12 says this, a funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. So just see what's happening here. Two crowds converge. Two atmospheres collide. A large crowd of mourners meets an even larger crowd of celebrants. The mourners are carrying a dead boy on a stretcher probably just in his teens or early 20s. 
Like we all know that death is always tragic, but it feels even more bitter when someone so young dies. Personally, I've sadly led more than a few funerals of parents burying their own children, and those funerals always carry an added weight of devastation and sadness, that sense of this is not how it's supposed to be. But this death is even more serious because the deceased boy was the widow's only son. And in the culture at the time, the son would have been the only source of the widow's help and support. So now she's really in trouble. The Old Testament portrays widows and orphans as among the most helpless and vulnerable of people. In fact, Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Amos and Zechariah, they, they lament that the loss of an only son or an only child is the most painful of losses. And just to say, this is not to be anti-daughters. The text doesn't tell us whether or not the widow had any daughters, but the implication is that she's now alone. And everyone knows what this means. No husband, no children, no hope. She is destined for a miserable future of loneliness, poverty, and pain. And so this is the moment we find two crowds collide, two atmospheres collide. Joy meets pain, light meets darkness, life meets death, which will prevail. It's interesting, isn't it, that, I don't know about you, but you can find yourself in a situation when lots of nice things may be said about you and then someone says something nasty or, or unpleasant and that one thing, that one nasty thing dominates our thinking. It overpowers the positive and the good. That's the way it usually goes. The bad, more often than not, overpowers the good and dominates us. But that's not what's about to happen in this story. And so in verse 13, Luke writes, when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. So Luke tells us that Jesus made three immediate movements in the face of this suffering. He saw, he felt, and then he spoke. That first movement, when the Lord saw her, to see. And this word saw in the original Greek language of Luke's gospel, it doesn't mean just to kind of fleetingly observe someone. It, it carries a deeper sense of seeing. It's a deliberate stopping to allow yourself to be fully attentive, to behold, to be present to what is before you. It carries the sense of seeing and knowing what is truly going on inside the heart. It's like looking with the eyes of your heart. And notice who Luke says saw her. He says the Lord saw her. Luke could have written simply that Jesus saw her or the rabbi saw her, but he uses the title of God, the Lord, because Luke wants us to understand that Jesus stopped, that Jesus saw her and that Jesus isn't just any man. Jesus is God in human form. Luke wants us to know that God stopped and fully and completely saw her. God saw what was really happening, everything she was feeling and experiencing, and what all this meant for her present and future. He saw it all. This is a beautiful and powerful reminder that God fully sees us. If you're struggling or suffering right now, if you're feeling hopeless or fearful or overwhelmed, God sees you. He knows, he gets it, he doesn't miss a thing. There's a beautiful verse in Psalm 
56 verse 8, where the songwriter, speaking about God, writes these rich words. He writes, you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. The first thing Jesus does in the face of suffering is he sees with the eyes of the heart. You know, when people are suffering, the first thing that they need is to be seen. I wonder sometimes if, if I or you were at the risk of rushing through our days, our agendas, our things to do, that we don't have time to truly see people and what they're going through. Like when you're at the, uh, at the checkout and everyone's, you know, they've got their new Perspex stuff up so that, you know, there's reducing risk of infections and some of those checkout assistants, they're, they're wearing masks and all that stuff. And, and, and if we're not careful, we just let our shopping go by and with a quick hello, but maybe there's an opportunity to see into the eyes of their soul and get a sense of maps what they are feeling and what they're going through. How interruptible are you? Jesus stops and sees, and when he sees what we're going through, he's not indifferent because the second movement towards compassion, towards um, suffering Jesus makes, is that Luke tells us that Jesus' heart overflows with compassion. Movement two is he feels. Jesus is deeply, deeply moved and heartbroken by what he sees, what he knows this situation will mean for the widow. The original Greek word here for compassion is a powerful, emotional, loaded word. It has the words for guts or bowels within it. And we see this word used repeatedly in the Gospels where often we get this phrase that Jesus is moved with compassion as he sees people suffering. This is not a superficial feeling. This is not sympathy or pity. In the ancient Middle East, the guts were considered the very center of your emotions. And so if someone in the Middle East heard a tragic story, they would often respond by saying, um, not they wouldn't say, you're breaking my heart. They'd most commonly say, you're cutting my intestines. It's literally where we get our phrase, I'm gutted. It's like what I've seen or heard has emotionally hit me in the very core of who I am. And that's what Jesus feels for this, for this woman. And that, my friends, is what Jesus feels for any of us who are suffering and in pain. He hasn't changed. He sees us and then he feels deeply for us. God cares for you. He feels for you. And that's a challenge for us in terms of how does that work its way through us into the lives of other people. It takes a bold and courageous person who is willing to pray every day, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Keep my heart soft, not hard, and let me feel what you feel for others. Compassion. Jesus sees and then he feels, but then he does a third thing. He speaks into our pain. And to the widow, he says this, don't cry, he said, Luke tells us. Movement three is to speak. Jesus speaks to the widow and says, don't cry, or, or in other translations, uh, weep no more. And let's be honest, this feels like a strange and even insensitive thing to say. Like I've visited people who've lost loved ones. And, and the very last thing I would ever say to them is like, don't cry. In fact, sometimes I say, cry, let it out. So you can imagine perhaps thinking that the woman would respond and say, Jesus, hold on. 
I'm burying my son. My life is over. I'm going to be destitute. This is one of the worst things that can happen to a person in this culture. Jesus, you're supposed to be smart. Like, you know this. If anyone has a reason to cry, it's me right now in this moment. What's interesting is there's no sense in the story that the widow reacted like this. See, most of the time, if we say to someone, don't cry or don't worry, those are well-intentioned but empty words. They won't have any effect on the person other than perhaps them thinking that we're an insensitive imbecile. But perhaps in this moment, the widow started to sense something different about Jesus. Perhaps there was something about the empathy, the compassion, the understanding that Jesus was communicating to her. And that the way he spoke those words, the tone and the atmosphere that those words carried, had the sense that they carried an authority which might suggest that those words were harboring hope, that they were pregnant with possibility. It was as, it was as if Jesus wasn't just saying, don't weep. It was as if he was saying, don't weep. Watch. Watch. Jesus is not saying here, by the way, that we shouldn't feel sad or cry or grieve. There were times when Jesus wept himself, moments when he sought time alone to grieve, when, for example, he heard that his own cousin John had been killed. There is a time to mourn and weep, for sure. And Jesus creates space for that. But then there's a time where Jesus wants to speak into our situation, to speak life into something that feels hopeless, where Jesus wants to whisper, don't weep, watch. And we learn to start to lift our heads and see what the God of the impossible can do. Like for sure, when this works through us, we need wisdom from God to know when to speak life into someone's suffering. At the start, it's usually always right just to be present in the pain and keep your mouth shut. But then we pray that God will give us the comforting and hope-filled words, not trite phrases, but comforting and hope-filled words that will start to bring light into the darkness of that situation. But one of my favorite quotes ever is this, it, this quote. It says this, Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives, but God is not helpless among the ruins. How does Jesus respond to suffering? We've seen these first three movements that Jesus makes in this one verse alone. The order of them feel important as we think about how God responds to us and how he invites us to respond to others. Movement one, Jesus sees our pain. He understands us fully. Movement two, Jesus feels deeply for us. He cares. His heart goes out to us and for us. And movement three, Jesus then speaks hope and possibility into our lives and our situations. As if to say to us, look, I know this is terrible. I know that you're heartbroken. My heart goes out to you. But this is not the final chapter in your story. You can soon dry your eyes for watch what I can do even in the midst of this. And on this occasion, Jesus then does something incredibly shocking and then something totally extraordinary. And the incredible shocking thing we find in Luke chapter 7 verse 14, movement 4, Jesus immerses himself into the suffering. He literally steps into the pain and touches it. We're told this, then Jesus walked over to the coffin and touched it, 
and the palm bearers, the, the funeral bearers, stopped. Remember, this is not a coffin like we know today. It's more like a wooden plank that acted like a stretcher holding the dead-wrapped body of the boy who's being carried. Luke tells us that Jesus draws near to it and then he touches it. But again, this word for touch is not like just a, a loose touch, a tagging. It literally means to cling to. And no one does that. Like you don't touch dead people in the first century, especially if you're supposed to be a holy person or a rabbi, because touching death makes you unclean. Like no wonder the funeral bearers stopped. Like what is Jesus doing? Jesus gets up close and personal with death. He enters into the darkness and pain. He goes where no one wants to go. Because Jesus is not repelled by mess and death and suffering, he's actually drawn to it. And now everyone is stunned and thinking he's made himself unclean. Jesus has been tainted with death. It's incredibly shocking. And Jesus is still doing this today. Whatever mess you feel you're in, however dark your situation, Jesus refuses to socially distance from you. His love for you is so relentless and passion for you is so unquenchable that he will enter into your pain, your mess. He is with you. A songwriter in Psalm 139 writes these words that even in my darkest hell, God, you are there. You are with me. Jesus again shows us how to respond ourselves to be prepared to enter into the mess of another's pain. Don't think you can truly comfort and help someone if you're not prepared to get your hands dirty. Of course, we can't do this for everyone, but we can do this for someone. So we pray, God, show us who and how. Movement four, Jesus immerses himself into the place of suffering. But then the next part of verse 14 tells us that Jesus then does something extraordinary. He acts. Jesus actually wants to do something about this. He has the resources available to help the very power of the Holy Spirit. And so Luke tells us this, that Jesus says to the dead boy, young man, I tell you, get up. Jesus speaks to the dead young man and tells him to get up, literally, rise up. Jesus doesn't offer a big, long, meandering prayer. He's not beating his chest. He simply says, arise. Now, if you've ever been a parent of teenagers, that you'll know it's pretty difficult to get your child to get up and out of bed when they're alive and breathing. But to say this to a teenager who isn't breathing, let's face it, that's utterly impossible. But God inhabits the realm of the impossible. And such is the power of these few words from Jesus that Luke tells us in verse 15, that the result is this, then the dead boy sat up and began to talk. I love how Luke phrases this. He says, he makes it absolutely clear that the boy is like properly dead. Then the properly dead boy suddenly sits up and he starts to speak. And like, wouldn't you have loved to know what he said? Maybe he said like, I'm back. Or maybe like, you'll never guess where I've been. Or maybe he looks around at the funeral procession and, and kind of asks, confused, like, who died? No one knows. I think Luke, who was a doctor, simply wants us to know that this properly dead boy is now properly alive. He is a talkative teenager who gets out of bed when asked. And every parent knows that is a miracle. 
but seriously, something extraordinary has happened, something impossible. The boy's been dead for hours, and now he's been fully revived. He is fully healthy and well, no ill effects, no brain damage. He's talking as normal. He's completely healed. It's extraordinary. Jesus touches death, but instead of him being tainted by death, Jesus transforms death with life. Jesus touches something considered unclean, and rather than him becoming unclean, he makes the unclean thing clean. It reminds us that it's impossible for anything or anyone to come into contact with Jesus and not be positively changed. Darkness hides in the face of his light. Despair dissolves in the face of his hope. Death flees in the face of his life. And again, listener, Nothing has changed. Jesus is still at work today. He has the power to do something in our situation, to turn a hopeless situation around. If 2,000 years ago, Jesus was over, able to overcome death himself by rising from the dead three days after his crucifixion, then he is more than able to help us overcome anything we face in life, to rise above it because it is still impossible for anything or anyone to come into contact with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and not be positively changed. We too, friends, can learn to act when we see people in pain. We can act practically by suggesting ways that we might be able to help them out, not just by saying, how can we help? but literally offering specific ways of helping people that they can either accept or refuse. Like, you know, when we say to people, like, how can I help? Like, that can paralyze them. It's far better that we say, can I do this for you? Can I help you in this way? We can act pra practically, but we can also act prayerfully, inviting God to break in supernaturally and in an extraordinary way into the situation. Which is why we see this final movement of Jesus when it comes to suffering. Movement six, he restores. Luke gives us this breathtakingly beautiful commentary on what happens next, which is loaded with emotional punch. The end of verse 15 says this, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. What a moving phrase. Jesus restored her son to life, gave back what she thought was lost, and in doing so, he restored a relationship. He restored dreams. He restored hope. He restored a future. He restored a destiny. He restored life. Jesus always was, still is, and forever will be in the business of restoring lives. And let me be honest, his restoration might not always look like what we hoped for. We might find ourselves in experiences that feel like the final word has been spoken. The book is closed. But friends, in my own personal story, I've discovered that Jesus is, is the one God who has the power to rewrite the story, that he is the final word. And, and so even when a particular chapter in our lives concludes with unspeakable pain and suffering, which feels like the end, which feels like we may never recover, if we are willing to place our lives into his hands, we'll be amazed to see how lovingly and gently and slowly Jesus will open up new chapters we never dreamt possible. 
Jesus interrupts this moment and changes everything. How does he show us about dealing with suffering? Number one, Jesus sees. He sees the whole you in your whole story. Number two, he feels. He feels your pain and cares deeply for you. Number three, he speaks. He speaks possibility and hope and expectation. Number four, he immerses. He steps into the pain and the suffering and the mess. He acts to intervene and bring change and healing and transformation. And he restores. He restores what was felt would never be recovered. This is what God is like. This is what God does revealed in Jesus. You know, I wonder as I start to close if one of the many reasons that Jesus was so touched by this moment was because that he knew in less than three years his heavenly father and his earthly mother would have to watch and weep as he died, an agonizing death on the cross, dying a criminal's death, the perfect sinless son of God, bearing the guilt of sinful, selfish humanity in a priceless, astonishing divine exchange. And yet through this most outstanding, unrepeatable and unrepeatable act of love and sacrifice, Jesus has made a way for us to be fully restored in the whole of life. A a foretaste of which we get now, this side of heaven, but the full riches of which we will enjoy with him in his promised new creation where sickness and suffering and death will be long forgotten memories of a distant past. Until that day, Jesus invites us to receive him into our lives, to be our saviour and Lord, our rescuer and restorer. And he invites us to join in with him to be this good news to other people that we too would, one, see, that we would slow down to see what people are going through, that we would secondly feel, that we would feel the pain and care for other people who are struggling so much. Thirdly, that we would speak, speak with wisdom and life and possibility and hope and expectation when the moment is right. That we would fourthly immerse and that we would be willing to step into the pain and the suffering and the mess of others. That number five, we too would act and do what we can to bring help and healing into every situation that we feel called to respond to. And finally, that we would restore. That we would, not ourselves, but introduce people to the one who alone can bring the true restoration that people need. This is a word for us, this incredible story of the Jesus who comes and interrupts death. That's what he always does and brings life. How will you respond? If in this moment you are not someone who knows Jesus personally, I invite you to respond, to invite him to be part of your life, to invite him to come and forgive you, to heal you, to restore you into a relationship with God, and to have God at the center of your life, that you're praying simple prayers every day. God, I'm sorry for where I've hurt myself, hurt other people. I've lived a selfish life in places. I'm sorry I didn't put you first and acknowledge you. Forgive me. 
God, thank you, though, that you love me. And you loved me enough to come and die on the cross, paying the price for my brokenness and failures, taking it on yourself and rising again three days later so that the price is paid and that there's no barrier between me and you. Sorry, thank you, and help. Help me to live the rest of my life as you, with you as my Lord and my Saviour, my boss, you at the centre of everything, becoming more like Jesus and being good news like Jesus is and wants to be in the world today. Maybe that's your response. And if you want to pray that prayer, pray it. And, and why not connect with us at zochurch.com forward slash connect. Send us a note to, to let us know you're praying that prayer or that you want to find out more about this Jesus. And finally, if you're someone who knows Jesus, whether you've been following him for a couple of months or years and years, I want to encourage you to have that openness, that courage, that bravery to say, God, would you help me join in with what you want to do to alleviate the suffering and the pain in this world? That, that we would have that bold prayer, break my heart for what breaks yours and help me to do what you would do. Remember, you, you can't do that for everyone, but you can do it for someone. Who, who might even now, God, be prodding you to reach out and love and care for and alleviate their suffering in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do it. You'll never be the same again. God bless you.